Good morning. Good morning, River City. It is so good to see everybody here this morning. It's Family Sunday. It's also the fourth Sunday of the Advent season. Um, we have two talented artists who are going to be representing who Jesus is through art this morning um, during our Advent service. Um, and it's love is the um, fruit of the spirit we'll be focused in, focusing on. Uh, my name is Antramika Knight, for all those who do not know. And it is my pleasure to welcome you here this morning. Um, here at River City, we read from the lectionary at the beginning of each service. Um, typically, it is a psalm. It's a psalm this morning. Um, and it's from Psalm 80. Um, and it starts off by saying, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who led Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherub shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Verse 17. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand and the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you Give us life, and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. If we can bow our heads in prayer. Lord, we welcome those who are here today. We thank you, Lord, for each individual, for we are all your beloved. We are all your bride, Father God. Thank you that you are friend and family, father, mother, cousin to each and every one of us. Thank you, Father God, for River City, the city of Smyrna, as we gather this Sunday. In your son's name we pray, amen. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that he is Lord and to the glory of God the Father. God, we... Um, present to you a hurting and broken world where the shadow feels immense and dark and overwhelming and overcoming. And so we cling to the truth 
that there will be a day where you will come again and that every tongue, every king, every government, every leader, every person will acknowledge that you are God. They will bow, we will bow. lift up to you the Christians in Kenya 11 of them killed in a bus attack would you be present with them may your comfort and your peace be tangible surrounding them and their families and for the 1000 plus Christians that have been killed in Nigeria alone this year, may you come and be near to the, the Nigerians, the Christians in Nigeria who are clinging and declaring and prophesying a hope that they do not see or feel right now. And we thank you that we can look to them and in their situations and we can say, every tongue will confess that you are God. We look around the world and the United States is included and the tension between government and people, it just seems to be rampant. Chile is in extreme distress between the people and the government. Yemen has been fighting for five plus years. The United States in our own way are feeling the tension, people fighting the unrest, the church, is being pulled into division. God, would you come and would you remind us as believers our place in this world is to be the voice of, of peace and of truth. May justice in your name rise up in us with wisdom and discernment. May we only walk when you tell us to walk. May we speak when you call us to speak and may we listen when you call us to listen. For the unjust rulers, for those who are walking in wicked ways, may we be reminded that even they will acknowledge you as God, that they will bow down. as the Advent season comes to a close and we head into Christmas. I pray specifically for just the, the presence in, the, the, in Smyrna and in River City and often the hard, the hard stuff that gets stirred in us personally and even those around us, the, the tension that can come up and being around family the disappointment of it being another year that wasn't going the way we thought it was going to go. When shame and lonely and isolation seems like it's shouting louder. What we remember is that the very mention of your name, darkness has to flee. 
And so if we have no other words, would we ourselves say in our own lives and into our neighbor's lives, at the name of Jesus, things shift. pray specifically for this week in the sex trafficking world. I just pray that business would not go as planned. I pray that in the darkest of darkest weeks that your light would burst onto the scene that confusion would enter into that space, that logistics all of a sudden wouldn't pan out, that rescues would happen, that life would be restored, that reconciliation would be rebirthed. And with me, would we with great faith and hope look to those involved and say, Every tongue will confess. We thank you that you are God with us, that we are indeed not alone. And while we crave for the perfection of the new heaven and the new earth and of your coming a second time, may we rest in knowing that today you are with us. So we are doing, uh, we're going to do communion at the end of service today. So I want to create some space for that. So I won't be too long-winded. Um, we, you know, we're in the Advent season. And uh, for those of you who don't know, in the Christian calendar, the Advent is, we treat, typically treat Advent like it is all a celebration leading up to Christmas, which is this big crescendo. And really, Christmas starts on December 25th. It goes into Epiphany in January. And so Really, the Advent season is more about the longing and the being in the darkness that leads up to the light breaking through. And so we're in that season, and I kind of want to lean into that a little bit more today to talk about the hopelessness of what, it, what was the hopelessness before the hope came in. And so I want to, I was thinking this week and about when I was in India a few weeks ago with Sarah and Jen. And um, we were in India, and if you've never been there, it's, it's a, from a Westerner's perspective, it's really hard. It's, it's very impoverished. And we went to this, uh, the guys went to a, it was called a home for the dying. They called it a home of hope, house of hope. But it was actually really, really somber. And uh, the women went to one as well. And we just kind of tended to some of the needs of the men there. And I had this kind of journal entry that I wanted to read to you a week after uh, we were there uh, of some of the feelings I had with an encounter. So it says this, one week ago, I was walking around a home for the dying in Bangalore, India. Man after man sat around wallowing in a wide range of physical and mental pain. Some sat merely waiting for their next plate of food 
with no hope for a better life. Others laid prostrate in the dirt, holding back the agony of their physical discomfort. With a simple set of nail clippers, I walked up to each man and tended to the simplest of their needs. I held their hands and clipped away, pausing only briefly to look into their eyes. I remember one man in particular. He was lying on his back in the dirt, unable to walk. The language barrier limited our communication to mere stares. As I held his hand and peered into his eyes, I could see that the area around his pupils was yellow, a slight indication of hopelessness. It was a sad state of being, and I knew that in that moment, I was the only person on the planet that cared about him. It was as if I could see the years of abandonment and neglect that he had endured, and I was faced with a difficult question. Where was Jesus in this situation? And better yet, who could Jesus be for this man? Yet in the midst of the questions, I could see Jesus behind those yellow, hopeless eyes. I could see him staring at me, and I knew that Jesus was present. You see, when we get into the, the birth story, it's definitely hard for us to connect with. And but when we hear a story like this, I think it's easy to imagine how the birth of a baby might be some sense hopeful for this man. When we, if, you were to, if I were to go to this man, I'd say, look, there's hope that you will no longer feel abandoned, that you'll no longer feel neglected, that there will no longer be generational poverty in your family, that you'll no longer be in physical discomfort or never have hunger again. These types of hopes that I could offer, even if it's just through the birth of some random baby, it would be a yes, because there's no other options for this man. He has no other means by which to get these things. And so he might, the birth of Jesus might be everything, the only thing that he could have hope in. But the hope is kind of ambiguous. I mean, this is a baby, right? The idea that a baby is going to offer us something. Have you ever held a baby? It doesn't do anything for us other than just be there. That is the purpose of a baby. And so the question I want to pose for us today is, what does this child's birth actually have to do with our lives? Because we get into this season and we celebrate the birth of this baby, and it feels like, what in the world does this baby 2,000 years ago have to do with me? And I think that maybe in the simplest of ways, it offers us a hope that tomorrow might be better than today. And when you're in physical and mental pain, emotional pain like this man, yeah, the hope for tomorrow being better is, yes, I want something better tomorrow. But what happens if your life right now is actually pretty good? Then you don't really care about a hope for something different. And I think that's probably where the majority of us are that today is okay, and so the hope of something better tomorrow isn't really necessary. So what if we think we already have a better world? I think Christmas is a season where our, the secular version of Christmas and the Christian version of Christmas really collide, because our Christmas, the narrative of the outside world is that Christmas is a season where everything is perfect. Everything is good. We sing the songs together. We watch the Christmas movies where all the families outside of like the Griswolds and the Home Alone family, which is very unrealistic today. They, there is this sense that there is like this perfection and 
Even like our Christmas cards, right? They are like these perfect picture of us when all the other ones were horrible. We know that. But we have, we send out like, look, look, we were good in this one moment. And it's still typically for my family, not a great one. Even our Christmas Eve service, right? We'll come together and we will all be dressed in our Christmas garb and we will look like we are ready. And then the reality of that hour will be chaos with kids running around and screaming and you're annoyed with the person behind you and the wax is melting on your hand. The, the actual experiences and the realities are not really what... I mean, this is a crazy statistic. There are 40% of American goods are purchased within the four weeks between Thanksgiving and Christmas. 40% of the things we buy is right now. It's filled with get what we want and create the best world we can for ourselves. And our families are perfect in this season, aren't they? But they really aren't. (laughs) That's the truth. And see, we ignore the pain. We ignore in this season the pain that we really have within ourselves, the pain where the reality is people have wronged us, that we have real enemies or we are an enemy to somebody, likely. We have hurt people. We're in distress. We're in financial hardship. We're struggling with addiction. We are being abused. These are real things that are happening for all of you in this room. Did you know that 23% of Christians say that they know someone that they cannot forgive? So, a core, And these are practicing Christians. We're ignoring the reality that we can't, we can't even do the thing that our whole faith is built around. So we have a reality crisis. And I think social media doesn't help with this, right? Because we put on the front that we're okay when we're really not. And I think this is the, my favorite part about prayers of the people when we do that. It is so meaningful to me because I'm becoming a very aware that life is not what I think it is that there is some real distress happening in the world around me. I look at the pictures on the screen and it makes my heart hurt and it should hurt because this is real. This is actually happening and it's happening in here. We're ignoring it and we don't like to show it, but it is happening. Our neighbors are suffering. We're suffering. I'd like to read you a quote. This is from a guy named Don Silliers. says this, The hope for the coming of a child of destiny is certainly still alive in secular society. In complicated times, politically, socially, economically, the yearning for some sign of promise and hope in the form of a new leader is still very much with us. Such a sign of a coming child focuses the contrast between the forces ranged against the good and the hope for a salvation from all that is violent and destructive. Awareness of this gap between the world's actuality and God's ought to be of the world kindles the prophetic spirit in every age. There is an actual, the world's actuality and God's ought to be of how things can be. And this is why the birth of Christ matters, because it kindles something in us that says that this can be different. I believe it can be. And so we don't have to be fooled by this veneer that the world is a better already, because it's not. And it's okay to acknowledge that it's not. And I think as I've been reading, we're going to really get today into some of the social context of what was happening in Palestine during the time of the birth, which completely will change the picture of what we actually think was happening. Because really, like, I mean, we we talk about, you know, we sing a song like Silent Night, and I've been in the room three times when my wife has given birth. There is nothing silent about the experience. 
the, the infancy narrative of the Bible is very different than what we think of it, right? Mary was in agony, not just because of the birth, but because of the political and economic turmoil that she would have been in in her state of life, and she was 14 years old-ish. So she doesn't even have the capacities yet to be able to handle the stuff. So we're going to get into some of that. And I think that the characters in the infancy narrative, they, they, they weren't fooled by this facade that the world is already better because it wasn't. Their experiences were more like the man that I read in India, which is, makes it really difficult for us to get. But I want to unpack today why it can have meaning for us. So we're going to read again the passage from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. We already read it once today. We're going to read it again. This is what it says. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. I want to pause. The promise for Joseph and Mary is not that their lives are going to get better. It's that all he knows is that they're going to have a son, and they know his name, that's certain, and they know that the kind of ambiguous hope that they're going to, his, this boy is going to save his people from their sins. And the type of the, the experiences of Mary and Joseph, they would not have, that's not the answer they would have wanted. Like, how about you get me out of my poverty? How about you remove the oppressors who are constantly waging war against me and my family? These are the things that they would have wanted but God offers this, that they would be saved from their sins. Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, now pause, he was asleep. Have you guys ever had a odd dream? Yeah. This is the type of thing where Joseph wakes up and he's probably like, what was that? That was really odd, especially when Mary had already told him that she was pregnant. So he's already has a sense that she has a baby that she says is from the Holy Spirit. So he already has that context in his mind. So I would have assumed that Joseph was like, that may have not been God, but I'm going to go with it. So when Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew but knew her not until she had given birth to... That's an odd way to say that. Knew her not. It's Family Sunday. Until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's alive and well. Help us to gain a better understanding of what was happening in a world in which it's really hard because we're so far removed from it. Help us to see how it relates to us. I know it needs not just an understanding of Scripture and commentaries, but God, it needs a movement of your Spirit in our hearts to transform us, to cause our minds to see what needs to be seen, and to not see what we're not supposed to see. 
in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to spend a minute unpacking what was the context for Mary and Joseph. So in the region of Palestine at this time, they were in some continuous political conflict. They not only, I mean, you can read it in throughout the Old Testament that the Jews are in and out of conflict with all types of world powers. But even in this, the last hundreds of years, they would have, their family, Mary and Joseph's family would not have any, had, had any sense of freedom or any sense of peace and rest because they were constantly in and out of political unrest. And so what happens is this guy named Augustus is the Caesar of Rome, and he comes in and he starts to bring an end to the conflict. He, he establishes himself throughout the entire world, not just in this region, but the entire known world was essentially owned by Caesar, and he had brought a sense of peace. In, in history, we call this the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. It was established all throughout, but it was only really peace for a few because for the rest, it really wasn't. And I want to read to you, because I think this gives a best sense of what it was really like for the people at the top. This is what they thought of Caesar. This is an inscription from the Provincial Assembly of Asia in 9 BC. So nine years before Christ has even been born, and this prophecy is even happening, this is what's being said of Caesar. The most divine Caesar, we should consider equal to the beginning of all things. For when everything was falling into disorder and tending towards disillusion, he restored it once more and gave to the whole world a new aspect, Caesar, the common good fortune of all, the beginning of life and vitality. All the cities unanimously adopt the birthday of divine Caesar. Notice the word divine over and over again. As the new beginning of the new year, whereas the providence which has regulated our whole existence has brought our life to the climax of perfection and giving to us the Emperor Augustus, whom providence filled with virtue for the welfare of men, and who, being sent to us and our descendants as a savior, has put an end to war and has set all things in order. And whereas, having become manifest, Caesar has fulfilled all the hopes of earlier times, in surpassing all the benefactors who preceded him. And whereas, finally, the birthday of the god Augustus has been for the whole world the beginning of good news. You see, the language even of the Bible is not, these aren't, even the idea of good news isn't a Jewish concept, it's a Roman concept. Jesus was coming to bring good news, and it was for the people at this time, there was this sense that there was peace, but there really wasn't, because the way that Augustus would come in is he would come in and he would enslave tens of thousands of people. This is what he would do. He'd come into a region, enslave tens of thousands of people. Then he would crucify thousands of people. There's an account that in this area that he had crucified 2,000 people in one raid. So you can imagine a countryside filled with crosses and the smell of bodies that would have filled that area. And there would have been loved ones that you had lost. You would have been filled with fear. So this wasn't peace. This was This was all about fear. And so he would establish these area rulers, and Herod is one of them in this area. So he establishes a ruler, and then these rulers would conspire with the upper class. And so he would come in, and who's the upper class of the Jews? It's the religious authorities. 
that he would conspire with the people like the Pharisees. And what would happen is traditionally in these agrarian societies, 90% of the people are peasants, which means they are very poor. So what you have is an enormous socioeconomic divide where you have 90% of people who are being oppressed by this system and 10% of people who are essentially rulers, tax collectors, merchants, right? The tax collectors would come and they would they would say, you owe five, you know, you owe the ten five dollars to the state, and I'm gonna charge you ten, and I'm gonna skim five for myself. So this whole system is based on oppression, and it's specifically an economic oppression. It's an oppression of where the state is charging extremely high taxes that you can't meet. You're not able to meet them, and if you don't meet them, then you're a rebel of the state. And the state is Caesar is essentially God. So you're a rebel of the state and of God. And then not to mention you have temple taxes. So you have to pay to the religious structure that you're a part of. And those were high. And if you don't meet those needs, then you're actually a rebel of God, Yahweh, the one that you worship. So your entire life is about giving money to other people. And you are filled with fear that if you don't, you're not able to meet the demands, then your life is over. And the life of your family is over. And so what would happen is, these 90% of the world was in this constant state of distress where they would have very heavy indebtedness for generations to the point where you would have to sell family members just in order to keep some alive. There was, you would be enslaved if you weren't able to meet the demands. And what is very important to this story is that you would often be displaced. So if you couldn't meet the demands in your region, then you would go somewhere else because I can't meet the demands here, and I, the people know me here. So if I go somewhere else, I can just have a, a restart. And it's not as simple as like, I'm just going to go to Birmingham. And No, this is like, you're going to another part of the world where no one knows who you are. And this is the type of displacement that these people would feel. And so this leads us to what is very important in this story, is that this is all happening in the context of a census, Right? You guys remember this, that Herod is requiring a census, and the census is all about taxes. You go to the place that you are born in order to, to, so they know who you pay taxes to, and so they can keep you accountable. So there would have been a lot of unrest during the census. But there's a really big question. Why is Joseph not in his hometown? Why would Joseph not be, this isn't like taking a job somewhere else. You stay with your family because your family is everything. And Joseph is a carpenter. He doesn't make good money. So he doesn't have the luxury of just leaving, going 100 miles to another place. Joseph is probably very poor. He's probably enslaved to a system. I'd like to read this to you because I think it gets you a good sense. Instead of pondering why the Romans would be expecting people such as Joseph to go from their obvious place of residence to the place of their ancestral origins, we should perhaps inquire why Joseph was no longer in his ancestral town in the first place. In Jewish Palestine, as in any traditional agrarian society, the vast majority of the peasants would have been working their ancestral lands and supporting the ruling groups with a portion of their produce. How did it happen that Joseph now lives nearly a hundred miles from his house and family of origin, and even in a different district of Palestine? Tradition has it that Joseph was a carpenter. How did a carpenter make a living, especially in a village such as Nazareth, which was very poor? Was he perhaps a wage laborer in a nearby town? How did people become carpenters or wage laborers in the first place? Almost certainly because of some displacement. 
from their ancestral land because of debts or famine or war. Thus, Joseph and Mary represent the thousands of rootless people in ancient Palestine, cut loose from their lands and villages by the Roman conquest or by indebtedness, resulting from the intensive economic exploitation. So what we find is that Joseph and Mary aren't just two people. Joseph and Mary represent the entire world. They represent the 90% of people who have no voice. They are us. They are not just some 14-year-old Jewish girl and a man. This is, why the enti- this is why the wise men from the east and the shepherds are all flocking because they see that there is hope in a baby that might actually transform the entire world. And this is not a baby of Roman descent. This is our baby. This is one for all of us. And you would have had, peop- you would have had shepherds flocking to see this child and they would have they, wouldn't, they, were, they were probably at an age where they would have thought, I'm never going to actually see this baby grow up. I'm never actually going to be liberated from my pain, but I'm coming anyways to see it. So what would have been the hope in having some poor baby? That doesn't sound like much of a hope when you're in the type of intense oppression that these people would have been under, because this baby wasn't a Roman. So it's not like somebody, a baby is born on the streets today, and if you work hard enough, you can be president one day. That's not the case. He wasn't a Roman. He wasn't in the line to have any political authority. This would have been a very hopeless hope. He wasn't in the line to have political authority, and he wasn't even an adult. This was just a baby. And do you see how this would have been the most hopeless, ambiguous hope that they could have had? Of all the things, this is what God gives us, this little baby. You see, it was was very unlikely that this baby was actually going to do much of anything because their lives weren't going to get better. Mary's life does not get better when this baby is born. She's, by the religious system, she's been, she's had a baby out of wedlock, so she has a price tag on her head for the religious system. She's likely, Joseph's and Larry are likely have a price tag on their head for the displacement that they're under and the taxes that they probably owe the state. They're a rebel of God, a rebel of the state, and now they're having a baby likely in some barn somewhere. They're homeless. It is, it's a sad, sad story in existence, and Mary's life doesn't get better. Now she has to raise a child in the middle of all of this. And eventually, she watches her son get raised and die as a criminal on a cross. This is a sad story. And so what did they have? What was the hope of this whole thing? It was a hope because when you have a baby... You don't expect the baby to do something for you or to change your circumstances. Trust me, I don't expect my kids to do anything for me. I'm not like, man, one day you're going to raise me. You're going to change my life and my whole plight. No. I hold that baby and I think, you're with me. And I'm with you and this is all I have. And that's enough. I don't expect it more of it than that. I hold them and I think, You're with me, and I'm with you. 
You see, God doesn't offer solutions to our pain. He offers himself in the midst of our pain. So have you ever had a situation where it didn't, you had to make a choice and you knew both options were bad? Like you knew no matter what was going to happen that it wasn't going to be a good outcome? This is the type of, you're the prime person that this is for. This message is for you because it's in the most hopeless of situations that there's just a glimmer. And this is the type of light that breaks through in the darkness. Another story from India, I don't know why it was on my mind a lot this week, um, was, you guys may remember this, we were dry, in India there's a really big trash problem, so there's just trash scattered all throughout, and no one picks it up. It's just very strange. And we were driving uh, with our hosts, and that was a big question we had, was why is there so much trash, and why, like, what's, why is it like that? And I remember um, our host said, I don't know. Like, okay, well, that's not really a satisfactory answer for me. Tell me more about that. He's like, I don't know. He's like, Americans often want answers. They want to know why things are the way they are. And he's like, in India, that's just how it is. And we live life like this. And we don't really care what the answer is. And I think that it points to something is that we, we as Americans and Westerners require more certainty than the birth of Jesus actually offers us. We, we, ho- we want to have hope that something specific is going to happen when God is never offering a specific answer. He's just offering himself. So we're not hoping, you know, we don't hope in new jobs or spouses or babies or pay increases. We certainly don't hope in new political figures. You know, a new president's not going to be the answer or a new mayor is not going to be the answer. The answer is God with us. It is in our uncertainty that we might find hope, and that's okay. So I want to return to that question as we close. What does this birth of a child have to do with my life? And so I want to look at it in two different lenses real quick. If life is already good, I want you to consider this. We are America. We are the Rome of Palestine, and we are often the benefactors. If somebody from a different country were to ask, who are you in this story? We are the Romans. So this is very confusing to us, and we are the 10%, right? So that's something that we just have to acknowledge. We also have to acknowledge, and this is my short rabbit trail, is that we are economically exploited more than we think we are. If you, the, the, at Rome wasn't a capitalist structure. In capitalist structures, you, it's survival of the fittest, right? And it's all about who can advance beyond. And there's this great documentary on Netflix called The Great Hack. And what, they say something in there along the lines of, we love capitalism until it gave birth to technology. And technology has oppressed us more than we realize. I know because every week, my Apple Watch tells me how, many, how much time per day I spend on my phone, and it makes my heart hurt. And I'm trying to be intentional. We are a product of the things that are shown to us. 
And the way that digital marketing works right now, you are being controlled more than you think you're being controlled. There are plenty of data points on you. And the, if, if people and businesses can control what we see, they can control what we think, which they can, that means they can control what we do. So do not think that you're not being oppressed. You are being oppressed more than you think. And we are a product of that system. So consider listening to the world and your neighbor's pain. Become acquainted with their darkness. Even when you, don't, even when you think your world is good, become aware of the darkness of others. And secondly, if you're in hopeless situations, some of you are in the most hopeless situations you've been in in a long time, and you need to let go of the certainty that something specific is going to happen because that is not what God is offering. It is all happening so that you can hold the baby of God in your arms. That is your hope, that God is with you in the midst of your pain because tomorrow is better not because something is about to happen, but because God is with you. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. As we go into receiving communion, God, may we taste the flesh and drink the blood of Christ, that we might be reminded that we are with you and you are with us, not in a moment but going forward. In Jesus' name, amen. Father, we just ask that you would give us wisdom over the next 48, 72 hours and how we love you and love the people around us well. As we open our gifts, God, because we all will, most likely, help it not to be the light. Because for some of us, it is the light. I pray that we would tell the stories of Jesus with our kids and our friends, that we would live and walk as you did with our kids and with our friends, and that as we head into the day we've been working towards, we would celebrate the light that is to come. Because Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. One more time, because Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. We thank you, Jesus, that that's what this is about. Help us to love to give more than we love to get this Christmas. In Jesus' name. Thank you again for joining us today, and please visit our website at rivercitysmyrna.com.